Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an eternal possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padam, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was, on the, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this is this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a great people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God will make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you rather, given to you rather than your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that this passage was written for our instruction, that we too might gain endurance through the encouragement of the Scriptures, and therefore we might have hope. We look to you, the God of endurance and encouragement, and grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through even these Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in him, as he is presented to us in the Scriptures. Amen. (coughs) Preparing to die is not a fun thing. That's what Jacob is preparing to do right here. Uh, I know that Amy and I, when we had a child, suddenly it was like, we probably need to make a will. Both of us have come from families where on our mother's side there was an uncle who made the power grab to try to get all the wealth that was there in the family. And it caused a lot of division and strife within the families. And we didn't want that kind of thing to happen. We wanted to make sure that all of our children, the present one and whomever would come after them, would be cared for, provided for, taken care of. We prepared for our death even though it was distant, we hope. Jacob here, as the text says, is now about 147. It's not far off. He sees it coming faster than he wants to, and so he acts, making sure that he gets it right. I think in the back of his mind is probably that day when he deceived his father and stole the blessing that was due, that Isaac was going to give to Esau, even though God had said it was supposed to go to Jacob. Big idea this morning is that faith looks to God to keep his promises to the next generation, which is sort of fitting since we have a baptism this morning and we're talking about the next generation. But the covenant promises reassure worried or troubled people because Jacob here is troubled. Things are not exactly going as they had planned. Now, There are some aspects of this that have gone according to plan because Israel is prospering in Egypt. 
They are becoming more and more numerous. God's blessing is upon them as we see. But this was supposed to be a short-term solution because they kept using that word sojourn. We're going to sojourn here. But now that sojourn has turned into about 17 years. That doesn't sound very temporary in some respects. And now the word that is used is not sojourn, but settled or dwell. Something's happened. We're not sure exactly why they stayed beyond the famine. It's not all that important, I guess, from our perspective, because if it was important, God would have told us why they stayed. But stayed they did, and yet Jacob has concerns because of the promises of God. And we see even in the text that this is the God who showed up to him and who promised him in keeping with the covenant promise to Abraham, which was then given to Isaac and now given to Jacob, that they would have the land of Canaan for their very own. And yet Jacob is now in Egypt and ready to die. And he's worried about this because he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wants to be buried in the land that God promised them, that even though he would not have a permanent stake in it while he was alive, he would have a permanent stake in it in his death. And so he summons his son, Joseph. The son, the oldest son of Rachel, his favorite wife. And he asks that he would show grace to him. If I have found favor or grace in your eyes, he asks, then you would, can you show kindness or faithfulness? I know the uh, ESV translates it other than faithfulness, but the Hebrew word that is there is hesed. It is the word that is often translated loving kindness or faithfulness, and it speaks to the reality that our God is a covenant-keeping God. He always acts in accordance with the promises he has made within his covenant. And and so Jacob is calling for this kind of loyalty, this loyal love to be shown to him from Joseph. But I don't think he's speaking to him as father to son. I think he's speaking this way to to Joseph because Joseph is the vice-regent of Egypt. And if there is someone who has the authority to get his body from Egypt back to Canaan, it is Joseph. And so he appeals to him on this, ba- on this basis. Show me favor. Show me mercy, kindness, faithfulness. Carry me out of Egypt, because he wants to be buried in the land of promise. He wants to be buried in the tomb, the cave that Abraham purchased. He wants to be buried in the same place where his grandfather is, and his father is, and his grandmother, and his mother. There's something important because of the promise of God to him that he wants to be buried in that place. And so he asks his son to make sure that he is brought there. Then we have that very strange, awkward moment in the text. If ever I, if ever I receive or ask you to make an oath to me, or you know, either way, okay, my hand's not going under anybody's thigh but my wife's. Okay, we clear on that one? All right. That, that was an ancient custom in that day. 
Because, you know, kind of going back to the, the, the source of children. Okay? And so this is a, this is a, an oath that is made. And he places his hand under his thigh and he makes this oath. He doesn't just want a yes or a no, but he requires an oath, a binding oath from his son. Odd that you would think you'd need an, a binding oath from your son. But that just, that speaks to the troubled spirit that Jacob has at this moment. He wants to be reassured and comforted in this. Sometimes it's difficult for us, as we have elderly parents, to know what it means to deal faithfully and kindly to them. I know my father agonized over what to do with my grandmother. In fact, he and his sister had a disagreement about what to do with my grandmother as, as she, like Jacob, had failing eyes, as, as she was more and more immobile, as she was less and less able to remember who anybody was. I'm almost glad I was so far away because I, that's not the grandmother I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember the spunky lady. You know, the feisty little Italian grandmother that I had. I'm not going to remember this woman who wasted away because I was so far away and didn't see it. But my father agonized over that. It's difficult, as I said, to know how to deal faithfully. And, and yet Joseph honors his father, even though his request is going to be inconvenient. But we see here that Jacob took the initiative He was directed by the promises of God in taking that initiative. And that's where sometimes as, as children of older parents, we sometimes get frustrated is that our parents may not take initiative in these matters. They may be very passive because they don't want to let go of what is. They're troubled. They want comfort and security, and we need to be compassionate with them in the midst of that. But these gracious promises shaped Jacob's desires. They shaped his expectations. And I know that we must beware of fleshly demands when we're elderly. Well, in any case, I jokingly tell Amy that if I start to lose my mind to take me to a third world country and leave me there, because I don't want to end up for decades in a nursing home, a burden upon others. That's a fleshly demand on my part in many ways. Fortunately, she does not have a fleshly response. <laughs> okay? But we, we as the, you know, if you're the younger generation in this equation, to, to beware of your fleshly responses to parents. Maybe ask how the gospel hope shapes those demands. Interact with them, but also ask yourself how your gospel hopes shape your response. Think about not what's easiest, not what's most convenient, but what's most God-honoring in the midst of that. Because there's no one answer for every family. Wisdom, grace are necessary. And so impending death worries us, but God uses his promises to steady us in the midst of that uncertainty. 
The second part of this is that God's gospel promises stretch across generations. Joseph is summoned a second time, not so much by Jacob, but by his brothers. Because, remember, he's not in Goshen with them. He's over in the capital. And so, uh, Jacob has taken ill. He is weak. He's you know, quite possibly on his deathbed. And so his brothers send news, come, because your father is ill. And so he brings his two sons. At least his two sons, anyway. It's odd because Moses uses the term boys, and so we might be confused because remember they were born before Jacob even, uh, yeah, Jacob arrived, and it's been almost 17 years or 17 years by then. These are not boys. Well, that Hebrew term is used for young men of marriageable age who are single. So they're probably about 20, which Seems odd when they, you see them sitting upon his knees, like they're, almost like they're little children, but that was part of the adoption um, ritual that took place at that period in time. Okay? But he starts off with this. His hope. God Almighty appeared. And Bethel, or which his old name was Luz, and blessed me. Jacob is framing his life from the perspective of faith that there is a God who came, a God who promised, and because he is the almighty God who has all power, he kept those promises. And the promises he mentions were specifically the promise that they would multiply that he would be fruitful, that they would be nations that arise from him. And this comes initially from Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful therefore, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and rule it. And so there's a connection with the creation ordinance that we find there, but especially with what the promise was to Abraham in Genesis 12, which is repeated in 15 and 17, magnified, expounded upon. Okay, so essentially he's, he gave Jacob the continuation of the promise that he initially gave Abraham and his son, his father, Isaac. And what Jacob is saying is, this God kept his word. And implicitly, he will continue to keep his word. He has been faithful to me, and I am trusting Joseph and you boys that he will be faithful to you because he's almighty, and there's no one that can stop him from making you prosperous from an early earthly perspective, from making you numerous, and making you into a nation, and giving you that land. This is meant to encourage the original audience, the Israelites, as in the, either they're in, in Egypt before the Exodus, or they're in the... Um, the wilderness journey, it's meant to encourage them that the same God who was able to keep his promises to your forefather, Jacob, is going to keep those promises to you. Though many generations separated. His life was hard, but El Shaddai kept all of his promises to Jacob. 
He learned through experience that the God who promised was faithful. And then, in light of this, Jacob does something that Joseph probably did not expect. And now your two sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. He adopts those two sons and makes them his own. Now, apparently, Joseph had other sons born after these two, after Jacob came into the land. We don't hear about them here. Okay? He says, those are yours, but these two are now mine. That's an old formula that is spoken. We see that in, in uh, ancient texts, uh, you know, in that time period. Joseph is, uh, Jacob is not doing something unusual, but is following uh, social convention at the time. But what is significant here is that they take Joseph's place in the inheritance. Not only are they made his sons, but in a sense, they are made his sons in place of Joseph. We'll see later on in the text that it says, and he blessed Joseph. And how did he bless Joseph? He blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. So these two boys are taking the place of their father. When you look at the the 12 tribes of Israel, you never see Joseph listed, do you? It's Ephraim and Manasseh who are listed instead because they took his place. He Although he is the firstborn, Joseph, I'm thinking of Joseph, though he is the firstborn of Rachel, is not even close to being the firstborn son of Jacob. And yet, we see that here he is made the firstborn because he has double inheritance through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay? So he's adopting them into the place of Joseph. To give Joseph a double inheritance. And then it's, it's kind of strange at the very end there of 47, where all of a sudden he brings Rachel back into the picture and that she died and she's not buried where he wants to be buried. She's buried near Bethlehem. But that's, he's bringing in the, the sad truth of her premature death when she gave birth to Benjamin. And it's probably in, there, because he's expressing that he longed to have more children by Rachel. And in a sense, these two sons of Joseph are fulfilling that desire on his part. But what is significant for us here is that the the promises of God now are stretching through five generations in that one family. They were given to Abraham. And then Abraham blesses his son Isaac to receive that promise. And then Isaac blesses at God's command, God's will, Jacob to receive that command. And then Jacob, well, he's, in the next chapter, he's going to bless the rest of the boys. Uh, but essentially, he's blessing his grandchildren as his son. Five generations at this point. The promise of God. And I ask you, does God no longer do this? Are we to think that God is somehow not as concerned, not as as faithful 
to Christian parents as he appears to be in the Old Testament? I don't think this is so. Now, this is not a promise that all would believe, obviously, because we have Ishmael, we have Esau. But the text, the Genesis, wants us to keep in mind that those two are exceptions, not the rule. That there's something very wrong with the fact that Ishmael mocked the promise as well as the promised one. There's something very significant about the fact that Esau sold his birthright that's meant to be tragic. But the ordinary is for them to receive the promises by faith. And to live by faith. I think of my wife's family. Because I can't think of my own in this regard. Because I'm it, as far as I know, at this point. And yet, Amy's, and this, this seems to be the pattern in Amy's family. Her maternal grandparents were Christians. And then, but when her mom got married, they treated her like she was a Christian because she grew up in the church, but she was not yet a Christian. She had been baptized, uh, you know, I believe rightly, but had not yet come into the fullness of her baptism because she had not, you know, by faith professed Christ. And so when she went to marry this man who was not a Christian, her parents were rightly confused and concerned. And yet God was faithful and brought them both after their marriage into a covenant, personal relationship of faith with Jesus Christ. And all their kids are. And some of those girls married guys who weren't and now are. Right? It's, it's, it's like, you know, her sisters marry these guys who are like first-generation Christians like me. But we're watching all of these kids come to faith. God is keeping this promise that we see. It's not something unusual. We find it right there in, in Genesis. It's, it's, it's clear in Genesis 17, where it's you and your children. These promises are for you and for your children. This sign is for you and for your children. Paul, in talking about the covenant of uh, the sign of circumcision in Romans chapter 4, says that it is a sign and seal that righteousness is by faith. Now, did you catch that? Circumcision, according to Paul, was primarily not about land, it was not about ethnicity, it was not about culture, it was a sign and seal that righteousness is by faith. Abraham had faith and then was circumcised. But then he was to circumcise his children and call them to faith. We see that, I believe that pattern hasn't changed. Because we see in Acts chapter 2 the very similar language, almost identical language to what we find in Genesis 17. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, the Gentiles. It's not just about Israel. 
But let us not think that it does not mean that God is, has stopped being faithful through multiple generations of families. These promises are for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so we believe that infant baptism honors this biblical concept, just like circumcision did, reminding us that righteousness is by faith. And so the gospel, which is received by faith, has always worked through multiple generations. Third thing, since I probably spent more time on the second thing than I wanted to, the promises offer grace and call for obedience. Jacob blesses Joseph, as I mentioned, by blessing the two sons who take his place. But notice how he starts off. The God before whom my fathers walked. He wants them to know who's really blessing them. It's not Jacob. It is the God of his fathers. His own God who was blessing them. Abraham was told to walk blamelessly before his God. And so, what part of what Jacob is saying is that Abraham did walk with his God. And Isaac, my father, walked with his God. The implication being, there's an implicit command here that they too must not just receive these promises, but then also walk with that God. We are not just to call our children to faith. It's not enough to get to bring them to the baptismal font and get them sprinkled with water. We are to call them to personal faith in Jesus Christ, but also that's not enough. We then also teach them to walk with God. In other words, to follow his lead, which we see from um, places particularly like Romans 8, is he is leading us out of sin and into righteousness or obedience. We're teaching them to obey, just as Jesus said in the Great Commission. As you are going, you are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's what it means to walk with God, essentially. And so there's this implicit command given by their example. And so this is not, there's no cheap grace in the Bible. But all who come to faith have a responsibility to walk with God. Faith produces obedience. But children must be taught. Not only is this the God before whom his fathers walked, but also God who has been my shepherd. Centuries before David said, the Lord is my shepherd, Jacob did. Makes sense since Jacob is a shepherd. He understands about these things just like David did. Okay, He's saying, I also walked with God. God is the one who watched over me. God is the one who has led me. God is the one who has protected me. God is the one who has provided for me. He is saying to his son, and grandchildren. 
God is the one who brought Jacob through conflict with his brother, who wanted to kill him at one point. Brought him through conflict with Laban, who at one point was going to harm him greatly. Laban, who tricked him numerous times. Esau, who was coming with the 400, and he thought he was coming to kill him. The conflict with the Shechemites, all of these things. Famine, the conflict amongst the brothers, the death, the uh, what he thought was the death of his favorite son, Joseph. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. He is saying that through all of that, that God was with me. Ken and I, as we were sitting in the hospital the other day, we were talking about that as what, it, what it's like to be a dad. And there are those moments when you've, you've got, you know, you're there and you've got to hand your, your son over to the doctors. Or even worse, you have to hold them down. And try to say to them that what is happening right now is terrifying to you. I know you're scared beyond belief, but this is for your good and I am here with you. And when we go through struggles and afflictions and trials, that's what happens. He is there and he says, this is difficult, but this is for your good. Trust me. I am with you. I am not forsaking you. I am not abandoning you. I am not casting you out. I am with you for your good. This is the God that would shepherd Israel. The God that would set them free from Egypt the God that would lead them through the wilderness as a cloud of pillar and fire. They were to walk with that God as He led them. They were to follow where He led them to go. They were to do what He told them to do. And then we find Jesus who comes to die as the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The Israelites didn't expect that. The shepherd we have is one who voluntarily laid down his life for us and then took it back up again so that he still is able to protect us. We don't have a dead shepherd, brothers and sisters. We have an alive shepherd, but we have one who died to save us. Jacob continues, The angel who has redeemed me, the angel of God who wrestled with him, which he realized was actually God when he was all done, redeemed him served as his kinsman redeemer, ransomed him, delivered him. Jesus would come not only as the good shepherd, but as the kinsman redeemer. He would come to give his life as a ransom for us, as Mark talks about in the 10th chapter. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so what Jacob is talking about here ultimately points us to Jesus and what he has done for us and what he still does for us. He is still our shepherd, but he's our shepherd because he has ransomed us. He's bought us back. He's purchased us. He's gotten forgiveness for us. Not only is that offensive, but sometimes the way God manifests His grace is offensive. Because here we see His younger brother shall be greater. Joseph, and just imagine this for a moment, okay? The right hand goes on the favored one, the greater one. The left hand goes on the lesser one. And so... Joseph presents them so that if, imagine I'm Jacob for a moment. Ephraim is here and Manasseh is here. But Moses says that Jacob did this. And, and Joseph initially is like, no, 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 dad. No, no, you got it wrong. You got to put it the other way around, dad. And he goes, no. I know what I'm doing. Just as in his own life, it was not he whom, I mean, it was not Esau, the the older, that God blessed, but it was he, Jacob, that God blessed. He reverses them. But there's a difference between what happened with he and Esau. Esau did not have eternal blessings. Esau only had earthly blessings. But both Ephraim and Manasseh are getting earthly and eternal blessings. Them personally are getting eternal blessings, but they're, the nations, that the tribes that will come from them will also get earthly blessings. And Joseph struggled with this. Ephraim, I mean, actually, if you look at the, a map of uh, the 12 tribes, what you will find is that the three biggest tribes are Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh. There's two parts to Manasseh. You, know, you look at their, the, the, the size. Manasseh, geographically, is the largest region within Israel, followed by Ephraim. When the, the, um, after the death of Solomon, when the nation would split, it would no longer be a united nation, and there was Israel and Judah, which, was, which also had Benjamin in it. The capital became Ephraim. And was often called by that name, Ephraim. And that goes all the way back to here. It's this promise here in Genesis 47 and 48 that God had already intended that this is what was going to happen, that Ephraim will be greater, more politically powerful than Manasseh, even though Manasseh would be probably numerically greater. This illustrates for us, again, the truth that we see in Romans 9 to a degree. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, it's not saying that Manasseh is hardened, but it's pointing to the sovereignty of grace. God's in control of who he blesses and how he blesses them not us, 
And this also places a good reminder to us, even as we come to the baptismal font, that there's not a guarantee that because we've baptized this child that they will actually repent and believe and receive the blessings. Ultimately, it is in the hands of God who elects so that his election will stand secure. That he will receive glory for this. There is a, we cannot control the mercy of God as much as we would like to control the mercy of God. Don't you wish you sort of had the power to control the mercy of God so that the people you like could, could repent, believe, and receive eternal salvation? You know, and the people you don't like, maybe not. Okay. Don't you wish you sort of had that power? Lord, save, I don't know, Tom Brady. He needs saving. <laughs> okay. But Eli Manning? And you know what? In the sovereignty of God, Eli Manning is a believer. So is Peyton. It's up to the sovereignty of God, not my flimsy wishes. And we... <laughs> See, and here's, here's the rub. Why is it that Isaac wanted to give it to Esau? Because Esau was his favorite. God is not bound by our prejudices regarding our children or anybody else. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he will harden whom we will harden, and that can be difficult for us to swallow. But it doesn't make it any less true. And so we see that that contrary to convention, God's also redeemed us, because I'm assuming that most of us are Gentiles. We've been brought into Israel He also shepherds us, and we also walk with Him. So, our faith should shape how we approach our deaths, whether they seem to be far away or a whole lot closer than we want them to be. Faith looks to the promises of God, but also to the character of the one who made those promises. We trust that he who was faithful to us will also be faithful to our children. We pass down our hope to them and entrust them into his care. We trust that the judge of the earth will do what is right, not according to our preferences or our desires, but according to his wisdom, his goodness, his love, his justice. In other words, we trust him with the rest of the story. Let's pray. Father, sometimes I wish I was like the patriarchs. I could bless whom I wanted to bless. And it would happen. And yet they were led by your Spirit to do this. That you were at work through these frail men. 
slowly unfolding your plan of salvation that would extend far beyond this family into every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language, everything. They would be amazed, dumbfounded, confused, shocked by what you have done. Actually, they are, and they are before you praising you for the greatness of your mercy. Father, help us to also praise you for the the greatness of your mercy, the sovereignty of your grace. Even as we reckon with our responsibilities, help us not to err in either direction where we deny your sovereignty or, or fail in our responsibilities. Father, we need wisdom in that. And only you can give it to us. So continue to instruct us by your word. Continue to lead us by your spirit that we'd understand your word and move us in our inmost being that we would want to obey your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.